Okay. <clears throat> um, let's go ahead and get started, and we'll begin with prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here together. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for the freedom that we have to be here. And we thank you too, Lord, for all those who have gone before us. It seems, we, we seem so small um, in comparison to all the, the great line of saints that have gone before us and virtually all of them suffered far more than we do. And so I just pray that you would help us learn, be inspired and encouraged from what we study of not only of your word but the early days of your church being established here on earth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> um, the more I looked at where we ended last week and how far I should try to jump ahead. I was thinking of going um, from where we ended last week, which was the persecution that took place in about 250 AD, jumping all the way to what's called the Arian controversy. Um, don't, you don't need to worry about it now because I've decided to wait one more week. But um, because I, I do want to pick up two, at 250, which was um, under uh, an emperor called Decius. And then we go to the last great persecution, but it was without any question, by far the worst. Um, but it really sets the stage for, um, in fact, if we were to do our best to try to divide up into specific years, 70, 70 AD to really to 312 is a, the time when the early church was getting formed, getting on its feet, encountering some of the earliest heresies, getting organized, getting an established clergy and so forth established creeds and doctrines. Yes, there were some heresies going on that they had to deal with, um, but the 312 is a date, or 313, there's, it doesn't, either of them, they had some significant, uh, significantly historical things happen. Um, but it, it really is, you, you could say, the painful, in some ways agonizing initial formative years of the church. And you can't leave out the Diocletian um, emperorship and the persecution that took place under him because it was so significant and it was so um, it was so significant an impact not only on the church but on the Roman Empire it's the last great you could say struggle on the part of 
Satan and paganism and all the heathen gods in an attempt to one last ditch effort push off this radical rival Christianity. One last effort to try to stave it off and they failed. And the church changes some ways for the good, some ways for the bad at this 312 point. So, um, <clears throat> Decian, um, the persecution that took place there was one of the first, uh, most of them had been local. This was one of the first emperor or empire-wide persecutions in 250. Um, and that lasted um, not very many years. But by 260, there was a new emperor who let the church alone and subsequent emperors also left it alone so that there was a 40-year period of tranquility after the 250 AD persecution came to an end. There was 40 years of peace. Now, two things happened. Um, the church experienced um, rising numbers, rising prosperity, and some of the first, what you would consider impressive church buildings were built, um, lavishly furnished, in that period began to um, have, you know, gold vessels and silver for communion. And it, it was a, a time of, we would look at it. If we filled out back then, if they had um, denominational annual reports, they would look sterling because the numbers were up, finances were up, <clears throat> things looked good. But it wasn't too long before that also became um, accompanied by relaxed discipline of the churches in adhering to proper doctrine and behavior um, Quarrels, schisms, splits. Um, and it wasn't so much um, a bunch of bad doctrines as it was just lax outward ethical behavior that began to be watered down because of there was no cost to be a Christian. Now, you know, reading all this and kind of writing out some notes here, um, for tonight, I'm thinking, I hate to, I hate to think that um, whenever things are what we would call good, which we would pray for, which we'd hope for, and which we always, we credit to God, um, that they're almost without fail a downside to it. 
almost without fail. And I, you know, I don't want to um, sound negative. I don't like trouble. Um, I like things to be nice and predictable. I don't like changes. I, you know, I want things to go smooth and I don't want to be bothered, okay? Um, now that's, you can't, life isn't like that. But I think somewhere in, in us, we all wish for tranquility, calm water. Um, but it just seems most of the time that there's a rule we could say all through church history. Affliction strengthened the church and actually brought it victory. Affluence killed it every time. Affluence is more dangerous than affliction because we rest. You know, we, we get lax. Um, we get lazy. Whereas affliction drives us to God generally and takes you to your knees and helps you sort out what matters and what doesn't matter. So even though they, after this severe period of persecution, this 40 years, I would look at it as the blessing of God shining down on us. And I think it is, except it's how we use it or how we react to it. And we can, we can rest um, on our oars and kind of quit and drift. That occurred. Um, then now here there's going to be a little bit here of names that you don't have to remember one you won't have any trouble remembering um, but that are involved with emperors okay Um, but after this 40 years there came one final widespread very organized uh, most severe persecution thus far that the church had experienced. Um, There was an emperor came to the throne by the name of Diocletian. Now, the Roman emperors were never um, like a dynasty. It wasn't like the Queen of England, you know, the House of Windsor, whoever. Most everybody, actually, um, it seems like between suicide and assassination, um, that was 90% of the way that emperors changed, you know, changed. Um, and so it was not a really healthy occupation to be in, to be a Roman emperor. So this guy Diocletian it w- was, uh, they think, um, a, a son of slaves. So that meant that, he, that his parents weren't even Roman citizens. A slave couldn't be a Roman citizen. Probably 50% of all of the population of the Roman Empire uh, were were slaves or non-citizens, so they had no civil rights whatsoever. Okay, now this guy reigned, or he was emperor for from 284 to 305. Okay, um, now he he shifted Rome from being a republic, which is really, you know, what we are. We say we're a democracy, but technically we're a, re- we're a republic. We, we elect representatives 
to represent us in, you know, at our capital or whatever else, and they do such a good job. Um, but at any rate, <clears throat> and they never put their own interests ahead of ours. He switched Rome from the Senate and all the things that um, Roman government um, produced. He moved it to kind of an Eastern, more like Asian despot. No one could approach him. Uh, he, he had all kinds of soldiers and so forth around him. And the only way you could approach him, you had to get on your knees, touch your forehead to the floor, um, or you, you, you were killed just because it was Tuesday. <laughs> um, they felt like it. So anyway, he, he created for himself that kind of a government and really switched Rome from the citizen participation republic. He also um, <clears throat> kind of got tired of being a despot, I guess. And he, for 20 years, he was kind to the Christians, he didn't pay attention to them. He didn't support them, but he didn't bother them. So from when he came to the throne, they thought for 20 years, we're in good shape, this guy's going to leave us alone, we're okay. Well, what he ended up doing was the Roman Empire was huge, and it went from really the far east of the Middle East clear to Britain. And it was, you know, down into North Africa, all around the Mediterranean, and uh, into what today is Turkey, and up into Macedonia, and all that. So it was a massive area. He decided that he would appoint three what he called co-regents, okay? So there would be a total of four. He would be the f first of the four, but he kind of divided the kingdom up into four huge districts, or whatever you want to call it. Um, now here's a couple of, a couple of names. Um, <clears throat> one guy, uh, these three guys were one, a guy named um, Maximian, and he died in 310 of suicide. Um, <clears throat> Galerius, he died in 311. And Const Constantinius Chlorus, okay, he's the father of Constantine, okay? So you've got these three co-regents that, that are under Diocletian, but they administer quarters of the um, Roman Empire. And at the end of the 20 years, <clears throat> you have this guy named Galerius, one of his co-regents. He also was Diocletian's son-in-law, okay? And it gets real mingled up here, which kind of doesn't matter. Um, but the, that's the setting then. Christianity was uh, like yeast had gone, leavened the whole empire. Diocletian's wife was a Christian. And most of his court officers and even house slaves or whatever were Christians. So he was surrounded by them. But he remained, while being neutral towards them, he remained personally 
deeply committed to the old heathen, pagan, Roman, the pantheon, all the different gods that um, the Romans worshipped. Now, <clears throat> um, as he made this huge shift from a republic where people participated in elected senators and all that to being nothing but a dictator, you're going to have problems. There are a few people who don't like that. Okay, So one of the things he felt he needed to do was he needed to um, have a revival among the old-time gods and the old cohesion of the Roman Empire that would help keep it cohesive. It would be easier to rule. And who, who stands in the way of that? The Christians. Okay? So, apparently, this uh, Galerius, his son-in-law, younger, very cruel, very manip uh, manipulative, very um, brutal, talked him into and worked on him for a couple of years, but talked him into a formal declaration of state war against the Christians. Okay? Um, <clears throat> and it took a while, but he finally prevailed on him um, to get rid of the Christians. So, um, in 303 A.D., he put forth edicts, and every edict, it, it, it clamped down on Christians, and each edict got, where he'd, he'd give one, and they, they thought, well, it's not hard enough. So they'd, they'd tighten up a bit more, and then three of them in one year tightened up even further. Um, and <clears throat> then in 304, he put forth one more edict, and we even have the date of it. It's April 30th um, of 304, and here were the um, elements of this edict. One, every single Christian church was to be destroyed. Every, every building anywhere that was to be torn down, burned down, or whatever, but it was to be destroyed. Number two, all copies of the Bible I mean, this is a huge empire. All copies are to be turned in and destroyed, burned. Um, three, all Christians who were in public office of any kind, and there were even some Roman senators that were martyred during this who were Christians. All Christians in the empire, whether it's dog catcher or senator, military officers, it didn't matter. You're out as of today. You're no longer senator. You're no longer a general or a lieutenant or you're out. Um, <clears throat> and anybody that's Christian is stripped of any civil rights. Romans were, we really, um, the American, um, yes, we are on English law, but really a lot of English law and Western law is on Roman law. Um, and there were a lot of the um, rights, really, presumption of innocence and things like that that went to Roman citizens that we've adopted even, till, even to this day. 
um, but they were stripped of all those rights. They would then be nothing, be nothing um, higher than a run-of-the-mill captured slave who was non, a non-citizen and had no protections of any kind. Um, they also had, they had to, no more buying, as some Christians did, no more buying um, a fake document that said you worshipped um, the gods of the uh, Roman Empire and worshipped the emperor, um, nor even if, if it wasn't that form of kind of a buying a false docu- document, there were a lot of pro-Christians who weren't Christians themselves, but pro-Christian officials who would help cover for the Christians, and they would just give them false documents, and you guys are fine. Um, They had to actually sacrifice to the gods and get a certificate that they had, okay? Um, Now, in 303, before that 304, the, the, the ratchet had continued to turn. So jumping back now six, eight months, persecution uh, began and it spread throughout the Roman Empire, except for, it was ev- well, it was everywhere, but it was much less clear out west in Britain and what was then Gaul, which is France, and Spain, okay? Now, the reason for that is Chlorus, Constantine's dad, and Constantine was, I I guess he was kind of a junior emperor or something, co-regent, he was still fairly young. But that's where they were. They were pro-Christian. They weren't at that point themselves professing Christians, but they they didn't have a problem with Christians. So being far enough away, they protected the Christians quite a bit from the kind of persecution that took place closer to Rome and especially from Rome east, okay? Um, So now we we don't really jump, but this, this went for to 311. This started in 303, and it went to 311. So for eight years, there was the worst persecution the church had ever um, encountered. Okay? Um, in 308, this um, Galerius, co-regent who's still around, um, meanwhile, Diocletian had died. And so you really end up with three co-regents and then they were aging and so they would pass it, they would bring their sons or somebody to be sort of a junior, you know, ready to step in kind of a thing. Um, But this uh, Galerius, who's still around, he published a fifth edict because of the three at the time, he kind of held sway. He was the top of the three that are left. Okay, so he published a fifth edict, and this is what he said almost, I may read a little bit of it here. Um, All Christian males, with their wives, with their children, 
with any servants, um, their entire household, whether they're biological household or not, they have to, A, actually participate in the sacrifices to the gods, meaning physically help kill the sacrifice, whatever it is, a lamb, a goat, I don't know, whatever. But they had to be participants in it. They then had to, one of the main things you did was to eat the sacrifice after you offered it to the gods and you did whatever rituals you went through. Then you had a, a meal where you ate that sacrifice um, after a portion of it had been burned on an altar to the gods. Then you had a meal of that and that you ingested, in a sense, that god, okay? Um, so they were, they had to physically participate in that. And then the order went out that in every village, city, wherever, they were to take ritual, sacrificial wine that was little portions of it poured out as a libation to all these gods. Those were taken down to the marketplace in the town square and sprinkled over every bit of food, eggs, cabbage, I don't care what, that you bought. And that was, that was your supermarket. You, you know, you, that's where you got your food, okay? Um, so that any Christian to get food is going to have to buy to the Christian, polluted with sacrificial wine and so forth, um, you know, vegetables and meat and whatever, that they would have to eat and, and violate their conscience or try to live off of a secret garden somewhere or whatever. Um, they were really put in a horrible um, position. <clears throat> I think, well, and they say that every historian basically says there were no, there were no methods of torture um, and, you know, stretching out the ultimate death of the people that they tormented. Um, there was virtually nothing that wasn't thought of. I mean, they just racked their brains to think of ways, ghoulish ways, to torture and kill. Um, there was, of course, there was burning at the stake, beheading, but those got to be too easy. I mean, beheading is just, and that's, you're, you're done. So they... <clears throat> They did all kinds of things as far as, there was a lot of, they would literally physically roast people over a fire, take a day for them to die. Um, you know, the Romans were good at, they, they thought of crucifixion, um, but there were all kinds of just horrific inventions that they came up with for tormenting um, <clears throat> the Christians. They especially went after pastors, leaders, anybody in the whole Christian church, um, thinking that that would dishearten the Christians in general. There were an awful lot 
of people who caved. Um, they were called um, the lapsed. I mentioned them in the early persecution last week. Um, there were the confessors, were those who didn't buckle but didn't get killed. There were the martyrs, of course, who didn't buckle and were killed. And then there was a fourth group that they called Latin for traitors. And those were people who would, um, there, there weren't tons of copies of scripture around. Usually the church would have um, a collection of the books of the New Testament. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like today where there's just Bibles everywhere. But the traitors were people who, in exchange of, for their lives or their homes or whatever, because their homes were confiscated, um, confiscated their businesses. Um, I mean, they were just, their livestock were killed. It, it was eight years of terrible persecution. And some would deliver over copies of the scripture that their local church would have and in exchange for their life and the lives of their family. Um, so they called them traitors. So there were martyrs, confessors, traitors, and the lapsed, the people who just caved and offered sacrifices um, to the gods. Now, I think what I'm going to do, I, I, I want to give you, um, read something here. <clears throat> um, there's a guy named Eusebius who was the earliest Christian church historian. Um, and he was alive during this time. Um, and so let me just read. <clears throat> um, Eusebius was a witness of this persecution in Caesarea. That's in the Palestine coast. Tyre, also Palestine, and Egypt and saw with his own eyes, as he tells us, the houses of prayer raised to the ground, the holy scriptures committed to the flames on the marketplaces, the pastors hunted, tortured, and torn to pieces in the amphitheater. Even the wild beast, he says, not without rhetorical exaggeration, at last refused to attack the Christians, as if they had assumed the part of men in place of the heathen Romans, the bloody swords became dull and shattered. The executioners grew weary and had to relieve each other. In other words, that's the extent of how hard they worked and how extensive was the, the killing. <clears throat> but the Christians sang hymns of praise and thanksgiving in honor of Almighty God, even to their latest breath. He describes the heroic sufferings and death of several martyrs, including his friend, someone named Pamphilus, who after two years of imprisonment won the crown of life, meaning martyrdom, in 309 um, with 11 others. Eusebius himself was imprisoned but released. The charge of having escaped martyrdom by offering sacrifice is, a, is without foundation. In other words, some people said, well, the only reason you got out, they let you go and you weren't a martyr, um, was you caved secretly, which there's <clears throat> no proof of that um, at all. That was, 
well, I won't get ahead of myself here, but <clears throat> um, um, let me go ahead and read the next paragraph, and then that's it. In this, as in former persecutions, the number of apostates who preferred the earthly life to the heavenly was very great. To these was now added also the new class of the traitors, which I just, who delivered the Holy Scriptures to the heathen authorities to be burned. But as the persecution raged, the zeal and fidelity of the Christians increased, and martyrdom spread as by contagion. Even boys and girls showed amazing firmness. In many, the heroism of faith degenerated to a fanatical courting of death. Confessors were almost worshipped while yet alive, and the hatred towards apostates distracted many congregations and produced the Maletian and Donatus schisms. We'll talk about those maybe even yet tonight. Um, but these different groups of people who failed under persecution, um, and I, you know, you can understand, you can't justify it, but you can understand why the people who didn't and who maybe lost loved ones, lost had their, you know, husbands, wives, whoever, martyred, you can see why they would be harsh on ever forgiving the people who caved. Um, because that's real. I mean, that, we're reading about it here in a heated, carpeted, you know, and we're all going to go out with electrics, you know, with a remote starter and, you know, we don't know what we're talking about, about trouble. Um, and so for someone, I suppose it'd be a lot their attitude, but if they kind of waltzed into church after the persecutions got over um, with their entire family intact because they caved and you got battered, um, persecuted people sitting here with some of them too, limbs cut off, eyes gouged out, you can see why there were some church splits. Um, <clears throat> it was a, it was just a, a bad time. Um, <clears throat> now, um, at the end of this two thousand, or or the, of this um, three o three to three um, eleven. This guy, uh, Galerius, who talked his father-in-law, Diocletian, the emperor, into doing this to the Christians. I don't know what happened to him, but some horrible disease came on him. And whether he ever converted, no one knows for sure, but he, but he at least had remorse. Maybe he attributed his disease to the gods, you know, somebody taking revenge on him. So he ends up about facing, and in 311, he issues an edict. Uh, it's called the Edict of Toleration. And in this Edict of Toleration, he admitted that all of our efforts in the last eight years to stamp out Christianity have failed. And he, 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 he acknowledged it. Therefore, <clears throat> he said, they are to be tolerated, all of their rights are restored and whatever, as long as they don't disturb the state, the, the government, they, they don't cause trouble. 
but they're free to worship, they're free to do whatever they want, okay? Um, they can practice Christianity without um, any intervention on, on our part. Now that was um, huge, obviously. Um, <clears throat> it, they, of course, at the time didn't know it, but that was the end of the, the big, severe, organized, empire-wide persecutions. Was it the end of all persecutions? No, because remember, you still have three now, these co-regents. By now, Constantine's dad has died, and he, in 306, became um, the sole co-emperor of Britain, France, Spain, so forth. Um, and this Maximian had a son with a little bit weirder name, but same Max something or other. Um, and he and this Galerius, who were brothers-in-law, now if you can keep track of all that, it's just a massive soap opera, um, they still did their best um, to, they didn't give up. They still were picking at Christians wherever they could get away with it, um, even though the large-scale stuff was over. And much of it, um, what ended up happening, the persecution was so severe and the Christians' reaction was so under, uh, um, not understood by a watching world that the population at large became more and more and more sympathetic to the Christians. And popular opinion which I don't know how much the leaders paid attention to, but they at least knew somebody could put a shiv in their back. And so that's what they worried about the most. And when you have so many people getting more and more disturbed about the, what's the point to this? These are people we've, you know, bought rugs from for 30 years and, you know, meet at the market. I mean, they're our neighbors. What, what's going on here? It, it was, one thing I think the devil and wicked people usually will do, they always overreach. Um, you know, they, they get an inch, you give them an inch and they'll take a mile and it will end up rebounding back on them. And in this case, this, that, that is what happened and widespread sympathy for the Christians and the way they behaved um, really, really turned, turned the tide here. Um, so, after this edict of 311, um, there were, well, this Galerius then who issued it Whatever disease he had, he died. Okay, he had no successor, so now you're down to two guys. Somebody named Licinius and Constantine. Okay, Licinius was not a Christian, but he, you know, he was sort of neutral. Um, but he became unneutral. Okay, and started re-persecuting Christians in his part of the empire, which is over in the Middle East, Syria. Um, down into Egypt, but, but east, on in today, Iraq, Iran, so forth. Um, so Constantine attacked him 
um, and defeated him and killed him. So now Constantine is it. He's the sole emperor, okay? Um, he goes back to, he comes from Britain and over where his territory is. He comes over here and he defeats this Licinius who's the last co-regent with him who restarted persecution and that's why Constantine came and attacked him. Um, Constantine goes back home. Um, a guy came up in Licinius's stead and he was going to persecute Christians and he started towards Rome um, from the east to occupy, you know, the, the throne, if you want to say. So Constantine gets his army and he comes back from out west, okay? And it's on that trip, there's a place I have no, I just know the name of it, um, Milvian, I think, bridge, not far from Rome. And Constantine marches to that, and it's on that march, and the validity of this, I don't know. But on that march from the western point of Europe, Britain, France, out there, coming to Rome, to Italy, to attack this co-regent that had come up in the stead of Licinius, who he had defeated, Constantine has this vision that maybe some of us have heard about where he saw a, a, a cross in the sky. Anybody ever hear of that? Sees a cross in the sky, and I can't remember if he saw the words or says he heard the words, but it, he heard conquer through this sign, the sign of the cross, okay? Um, that was, I guess you could say, um, a conversion experience as he would explain it. Um, and so it was in the strength then of that vision that he had and his army. He came to Rome and um, completely obliterated the army that was um, between him and Rome. And so now Constantine is ruler alone. He's the sole emperor of the whole Roman Empire. Okay? Now, he is obviously, he being kind of pro-Christian anyway from his youth, then this vision that he had and this victory that he credited to God, credited to Jesus helping him in this um, battle, so he comes to the throne then. This by then is when he becomes the sole emperor is 323, okay? Um, so he is now the sole emperor of the whole Roman Empire. <clears throat> by now, um, and I don't want to get clutter too many days but 323 you're only two years away from what's called the Nicene Creed which we will talk about next week um, to settle a bunch of issues and out of it or not the Nicene Creed the Nicene Council and out of it came the Nicene Creed to settle some real big issues about the Trinity the deity of Christ and so forth um, and well I'll save some of that anyway <clears throat> um, 
after then, after Constantine um, defeats this Maxentius, I think was his name, um, then Constantine issues his own edict in 313. I'm back 10 years, but 313, much more expansive, uh, rather than neutrality as that 311 toleration edict was, the 313 one was a pro-Christian. It wasn't just neutral. It wasn't just, just leave them alone. It was, we're pro-them. Um, it didn't name Christianity as the state religion yet, but it was very favorable, you leave them alone kind of a deal. It would be similar to say Daniel in the lion's den or um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were tolerated to a certain amount, but when they wouldn't either bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue or you know when uh, Darius was, was the king and Daniel wouldn't pray to anybody else but God, um, the result was, in both of those cases, the, in that case, the Jewish religion um, went from being tolerated to being espoused. And both Nebuchadnezzar and Darius wrote to the entire empire from India to Ethiopia and said, anybody even says something bad about the God of Daniel, he said, your house will be pulled down and we'll take a um, two before, you know, we'll take a floor joist of the house and we'll impale you on it. Okay? Now, older versions of the Bible say you'll be hung on it. It's not what it means. It's, it, they would sharpen it and they impale you on it. Um, I'd rather really get hanged. If you, I mean, if you've got, if you got to make the choice. Um, so, at any rate, it, so this edict in 313 put Christianity clearly in the forefront. And by then, it was, I don't know that it would have been the majority religion, but it was close. Okay. Okay. Um, now, let me just kind of sum up here a little bit. The results of all this horrible eight years of persecution and the intrigue that went on between these four co-regents, they all end up dead except for Constantine, which I don't think God, um, God's fingerprints were on that for sure. Um, but <clears throat> the church, you could say, was temporarily purified of anybody that were fair-weather Christians. Um, they went through terrible fire. Um, the church ended up stronger. Now, you know, we have much better today ways of trying to um, find things out, get counts and so forth. But as China for the last three or four years, five years, has been cracking down on Christians, bulldozing Christian churches and so forth, they, they never learn. The devil never learns. But Christi the number of underground Christian Christians has just skyrocketed. And the, the, the underground church um, is, is growing. So have at it, I guess. Um, anyway, that was the result of this persecution. Um, 
But out of it, of course, came the one that always comes out when it's acceptable to be a Christian and it costs then little to nothing to be a Christian. It always shallows up the roots of people's commitment to God. Um, But some further things that came out, um, there were some, because of the severity of this persecution, there were some things that came out in in beliefs, um, you know, new ways of thinking that really formed the basis for some um, bad teachings that this is in the 300s, okay? It wasn't until 1500 that the Martin, Martin Luther and the, you know, the Protestants began to um, argue against some outlandish practices and doctrines within Catholicism that had their roots in this persecution era clear back in the 300s. Okay, here's a couple of them. One, veneration of martyrs and relics. Veneration, of course, you know, is really worship. Um, martyrs' birthdays or the date of their martyrdom were, were celebrated with, um, you know, not, you know, drinking and dancing, you know, Mexican hat dance stuff, but it was, it was big services and rituals and whatever. Um, <clears throat> and then the relics, there became this fascination with anything of the martyr. Um, now, an exaggeration, <laughs> Martin Luther, 1,200 years later, said, in Germany alone, we have the bones of 18 of the original 12 apostles. Okay? Um, Luther talks about going to Rome and someone, you know, they, he goes to a ritual in St. Peter's and there is a gold box and in it is one of the very nails from the cross. There's no way they, there's no way. Um, but, and, and so you got, you got points that I talked about last week by going to Rome and seeing that, that relic. The, supposedly today, beneath the floor of St. Peter's Basilica are the bones of Peter and Paul. Um, now, in a sense, okay, if you want to believe that, I guess, but there, there isn't a chance um, the, when Paul and Peter were both martyrs, as far as we know, in Rome, Paul beheaded, Peter crucified, and he crucified head down, they were considered common scum criminals. Nobody's going to save their bodies. Threw them to the dogs, to the wild animals at night. The idea that they've got their skeletons and all their bones are, you know, buried in caskets and it's underneath the floor is just utter nonsense. Now there might be somebody's bones there, but who knows? Um, but that started after this 
Diocletian persecution. And not only the, the they got weird to where people were begging, Christians were begging once this veneration thing kind of got out of hand, there were Christians begging to be martyred. Um, and some of the church fathers, some of the great teachers and whatever, pointed out, Jesus said, when you're persecuted in one city, he says, flee to the next. The point being, martyrdom, how can you say... It doesn't, it, martyrdom doesn't count if you volunteer for it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you're going, if you're just trying to poke them in the eye till they find, okay, we'll cut your head off. It doesn't count as you're not a martyr. Um, but they got just weird about it. Um, there's all kinds of stories of um, all around the Roman Empire where people would run into amphitheaters, Christians would, and trying to get gladiators or a uh, lion or whatever to attack them because because it brought such an aura of sainthood and the whole notion too of praying to saints got its roots in the Diocletian not totally but much of it in that period of time because it was believed that somehow the relics the bones or whatever um, I'm not making any of this up. There's, there are supposed fingernails of like John the Baptist in churches. I mean, it, it, it's just over the top. Um, anyway, that got to just a fever pitch and that began to be the basis for praying to saints and praying for the dead um, you know, obviously we can't solve these tonight. Um, but there is no reason to pray. There's no reason to pray for the dead. None. Um, their time of probation is over. And, you know, like, like the five wise virgins and five foolish, the door was shut. It, the time of getting right is over. So, um, there's nothing, in, in no one in heaven right now that I know of really needs us to pray for them. I mean, what kind of concept is that? Um, nobody in hell, which is grievous, there's no point in praying for them. God has finally said, like C.S. Uh, Lewis, We'll either say voluntarily in this life, thy will be done to God, or he will say to us at the end of striving with us, trying to call us and we won't do it, thy will be done. There's no praying for someone who's lost. So that whole concept is n not biblical. Um, again, spiritual powers of confessors, those th who were looking face, uh, looking death in the face, but were let go. And um, they were supposed to be able to forgive sins. Some even believed that. Uh, they Praying to the saints, prayers for the dead souls. Um, and also, there came two more things. Um, 
there came an, a focus on, as so many people died, and the normal wondering, you know, of the run-of-the-mill Christians, what happens to them between death, heaven, and the, the resurrection and the second coming that we've all believed in and trusted? Where are they? What are they doing? Um, and so out of that came the notion or the interest in an intermediate state. Is there an intermediate state? And is there an intermediate place? Okay? Now, Protestants, of course, this happened much later, 1,200 years later. But Protestants rejected the idea of an intermediate place, but we believe in an intermediate state. Now, what do I mean by state? Everyone in heaven, and so far as we know, everyone in hell, there's been no resurrection. So they, we, are, we will be spirits without a body. Okay? This body dies. It's buried. And the scripture talks about the spirits of just men who are in heaven, righteous men who are in heaven. At the resurrection, everyone, righteous and wicked, will receive a, a glorified body, meaning one that never will die again, is not subject to decay and death and so forth. But So there's an intermediate condition, quality, or state that every soul is in. Okay? Um, the notion of an intermediate place some get from Jesus using the phrase, um, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say heaven. And there's an old Jewish notion of, of the abode of the dead being divided into a place of the wicked and the place that they're, that, you know, there's a fence down the middle of the feedlot. And the righteous are over here. They're all in the abode of the dead, but, um, and the wicked are over here. Samuel, when that um, strange deal that God allowed to happen, when Saul went to a witch and he said, please call up a medium, call up Samuel for me. Um, she didn't do anything. And the reason, she didn't, reason we know she didn't do anything is because when she actually saw Samuel, who she tried to call up, she screamed and fell over sideways. She wasn't expecting it. She knew she was a fake. Okay? But um, Samuel said to Saul, you're done. God's, your deal, your, your, your doom is sealed. And he said, tomorrow you're going to be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me. That's all he said. Tomorrow you'll be with me. Well, does that mean Saul and Samuel both went to the same place? No. God had, Saul was a reprobate. God had stopped talking to him. He just meant in the abode of the dead. But there was a foggy Jewish notion of um, a, a, the abode of the dead being separated. Um, and then some people believed that when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he took all of the righteous spirits who were in the abode of the dead with him to heaven. And so from Abraham to, you know, to Jesus, they were locked up in this place. It was nice, I guess called paradise okay um, but I don't think 
The scripture makes it clear. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Um, so progressive revelation lets us know, I think, that there is no intermediate place. Now, why do we worry about that? If it weren't for the fact that the idea of an intermediate place became the foundation for purgatory in Roman Catholicism, we probably wouldn't bicker about it. But it became then, because in this persecution, and as it concluded, there was this massive question, what do we do with the people that apostatized and now want back in the church and are sorry? Um, what do we do with them? Well, the idea that some of these people are dead who failed lent itself to the idea that if they're in an intermediate place, there's time for them to work off by some forms of suffering what they did. And the length of time you were there depends on how bad whatever you did was. Okay? That was the foundation. It didn't get to where it became uh, 1,200 years later as a wonderful fundraiser to complete the building project at St. Peter's Basilica. Um, where that's what sent Martin Luther into orbit. Um, was the selling of indulgences, forgiveness, basically, before you do what you're going to do. Uh, it's crazy. Um, but you would get grandma out of purgatory if you gave enough money. Um, light enough candles and you shorten grandma's agony in, in purgatory. Um, and so some of, the, some of the roots of some bad doctrines um, were formed in this persecution because of the the, well, just the stuff they were dealing with and the questions that were thrust on them. What do we do with all the laps and so forth? So anyway, um, now that Constantine's um, the sole emperor, then um, they can kind of turn their attention to heresies and they get, a, they get a doozy of a heresy that comes up that two years later, after Constantine becomes in 323 the sole emperor, he calls this great council. But the key thing, the dangerous thing, and the thing down the road that bit them badly was the civil authority, even though he was personally a Christian or professing Christian, the civil authority called a church council to settle church doctrine issues. Okay? So if you want... There's the start of non-separation church and state because the Roman emperor presided over that whole debate. He wasn't a theologian at all. But 318, was it, I think, bishops were there um, haggling over this Arian deal, which we'll talk about next week. But anyway, so some real shifts um, that come clear down to today and affect our thinking today that started clear back, clear back there. Okay, well, I got an appointment here in a couple minutes, so let's pray. 
<clears throat> and wander around the halls like you've been out longer than you've been out. <laughs> Father in heaven, again, what you have supervised, what you have seen and what you've um, brought your people through and all that you did during these times and um, how great you are that you can keep track of all this. And still, I think, too, in the middle of it, bring to the throne someone that was a friend of Christianity and literally changed the course of history as we know it. So, Lord, I just I pray that you would help us remember you're still that big. You're still God. There isn't anybody to challenge you. And you're still doing exactly what you did clear back then. You said, I thwart the counsels and the plans of the wicked. You're able to do everything. So we pray that our hearts would be encouraged in trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen.